Good morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this is the word of the Lord. Be God. Please remain standing. Let's pray. Father, as we learn new habits <laughs> and adjust uh, the ways in which we live, Father, I pray that your word would guide and direct our steps. Father, fix our eyes for the race. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now you may be seated. I know, it's like teaching old dogs new tricks. Yes, we've not had the baby yet. It is still cooking. I called Jeff to find out how the workday was going yesterday, and he was doing something, so he hurried up and he just forwarded me to voicemail. So I called him back right away, and this was you know mid-afternoon on Saturday, and his his heart literally left his chest because in his mind, he was up to preach uh, <laughs> with my notes in less than 24-hour warning. And uh, I've been saying, well, the baby can come as soon as I say amen at the end of the sermon. So um, if you see Sarah um, signal me down, you know, it's time for us to go, so... Um, the title for today is Fix Your Eyes for the Race. Fix Your Eyes for the Race. Don't fix them on the race, but fix them for the race. There's a distinct difference, and, and we'll talk about that as we go. But the second half of verse 1 says this, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now I know that some of you don't race for anything except the bathroom, the kitchen, or maybe the promotion. But this is our calling. If you don't realize it, you won't run like it. This is our calling. You are called to run not just any race, but this race. You're not called to watch a race. You're not called to prepare for a race. You did that when you considered whether or not to follow Jesus. You're not called to prepare for a race. You're not called to make the race your own. And you're not called certainly to let the race come to you. You're called to run the race. Now, how freeing is that? I hope you think about it in this way with me. What is my calling in life? We oftentimes ask, what is my calling? Or, as I hear oftentimes young people ask, what am I supposed to give myself to? Or I tend to hear older people ask this question, like, where do I fit in? Now, the people, regardless of age, that are running the race well, don't typically ask these questions that I just listed. Why? Because they're busy running the race that's been clearly defined for them to run. And that race is pretty consuming and pretty challenging. Instead, usually when we begin to ask all those other questions that seem fine and dandy but are quite enslaving, those questions are being asked because usually the race has become more about the person and you cannot run this race when it becomes about you. It's really the antithesis to running this race because it can only be about one person and that one person is none of us sitting in this room. 
So how freeing it is to know this is the lane that I'm to swim in. This is the race I'm called to. This is what I'm to be about. This is where I fit in. I fit in as a follower of Jesus Christ among a cloud of witnesses. Now how different, so not just how freeing, but how different it is to broad evangelicalism that says something like just pray a prayer, hear some TED Talks, miss some screens and lights and smoke machines, and then go about your life however you want to. But here we're told we have to run the race. Like this is, there's a, a, a commendation, or not a commendation, but a, a command here. To, to run with endurance. And it's a race. And Christianity has become more of a, a say a prayer and then do some Christian things and generally watch. Let the pros do the job. But here we're told to run. Each person is to run the race. And if, and if, you're, not, um, uh, if you're not thought about this, let me help you. There is no participation trophy for this race. There is no like, well, you know, as long as you put one foot, you know, and you take at least one step, you know, here you go. All of Hebrews has been about running the race until the end. It's been about endurance, fortitude, diligence, all the way through the end. That doesn't sound like a participation trophy to me. But here's what the author is saying. Again, we must run with endurance. There in chapter 12, verse 1, the second part. So today, if we're to run this race, we're to run it to the end, it's not about watching, it's about uh, actively walking, running, then today let's talk about fixing our eyes for the race. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a series of you don't race blank. You don't race blank. The first one is this. You don't race alone. If you're to fix your eyes for the race, you don't race alone. There is no racing alone. If you're to win this race, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you don't race alone. Sure, you can try to race alone, but that's just dumb. You weren't created to race that way, and it's likely you won't succeed if you try to race that way. What we see here in chapter 12, verse 1, is that there are living witnesses to be heard. Living witnesses to be listened to, to be, to be heard these aren't dead men and women to be remembered. It's not a list of dead men and women to be memorialized. This is a group of people whose faith bears witness in such a way that it should encourage our faith. In that sense, you and I were not meant to race Alone. Now, who is he talking about here? He, the author is specifically talking about the list of people that we just spent multiple weeks talking through, chapter 11. All of those. Abraham, Noah, Rahab, Sarah, and so on. But it also includes all the saints of the Old Testament that went before us. John Owen says this, all the saints of the Old Testament, as it were, stand looking on us in our striving, encouraging us on, unto our duty, and ready to testify unto our success with their applauses. They are placed about us unto this end. We are compassed with them. We stand among this cloud of witnesses. It's a bit of a slam on the individualistic uh, notion of our day. It's not just you and Jesus, no matter how many songs or emotional songs you sing about it. We see here the importance of a collective or a corporate running. 
There is a togetherness in the race. Those in the race, but specifically here, those who have finished the race. And it's not just Jesus. I, I, again, in this like, it's just me and Jesus. And, but, but here, the author of Hebrews is saying there's also beyond Jesus, as important as that is, and he's going to kind of climax there, but, but before Jesus came, there's this big list of people who have ran the race before you that were not perfect, they didn't nail it all, but they lived by faith, and they stand as this great cloud that is cheering you on that you are running in front of. Pastorally, let me, let me tell you when it comes to this idea of individualism, I, I know we talk about this a lot, and I know most of you get it, but there are still people in our midst who don't get it. Let me put it practically. If there is no one in this church that knows your deeper sins and knows how to encourage you more deeply, someone who can exhort you or admonish you, then you are racing alone. You are racing alone. And chances are you will not make it. I get it. We all got like our excuses and our reasons and our baggage and stuff we're trying to hide. But, but listen, the reality is you will not make it. You need a great cloud of witnesses. You need what Hebrews has said earlier, the exhortation of a brother or sister on a daily basis so that your heart will not grow cold. This is not a race that can be ran alone. This isn't cross-country. I don't know why anyone would run cross-country, for the record, but... I mean, kudos to you. I mean, I couldn't survive, you know, but nevertheless. You'll race alone. You'll not make it. The encouragement on the flip side of this, uh, a guy named Philip says this, you belong to this noble company of God's people living in this world but glorifying God through faith. That is the context of your life. So let me put this, let me put what Philip says in a little bit different words. Life is not just the trials and the difficulties around you. Life is not just that indifferent boss or that antagonistic boss. Life is not just the evil state. Life is not just you and your own fleshly desires. Life is not just you and your depression or anxiety. It's not just you and your challenging kids. But the context of the race in which you're running is you and a great cloud of witnesses that has ran before you, that is cheering you, that you are running this race with. They just happen to get there before you. My kids uh, asked at the dinner table last night as we were talking about this, um, well, like, can I come in first? Or are you going to get in first? Or second? And I, I said, you know, Jesus ran first um, the rest of us are collectively running with him or something to that effect. This isn't a matter of first place, second place, which is just the first loser, but third place, fourth place, fifth place. It's, it's none of that. It's a race in which we're all running together, and the goal is completion. In fact, the only acceptable winning in this race is completion. It is endurance to the end. I know some people say, well, you know, I'm just going to, you know, what's the word, Um, straggle right in at the end, right? Like, don't let that be your goal. Don't let that be your goal. Life is not just, it's so easy for us just to get our our eyes kind of narrowly focused in on the circumstances of our lives, right? I mean, to get encompassed and, and surrounded by maybe the thing that your wife said or the thing that your kids aren't doing that they should be doing or that boss that's a jerk. It's just so easy to just forget and narrow in the context of your doings and your being to just that and to lose sight that you're a part of something bigger, that there is a cloud of witnesses that is there that has ran the very same race that you're running. You're surrounded by a great cloud of people who witness 
to the beauty of faith and God's promises. And if you forget that, you'll be driven by the wrong context. You'll be driven by just getting through this circumstance. You'll be driven by just getting to the other side of this conversation or this relational issue or this struggle or health ailment that you have. Don't lose sight of the context of your run, of the race that you are in. You should hear their voices and conform to the pattern of their faith, not to the pattern of this world. Which leads me to the next point. You don't race with weights. You don't race with weights. Going on to this next part. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, I know this is hard to believe, but uh, there was a day when I used to wrestle uh, for school. Greg and I actually wrestled together. There were times when I needed to lose extra pounds. I, I mean, much like I do now, but where I needed to lose extra water weight to make weight the next day, I would run with ankle weights on my, and wrist weights uh, amongst you know, sweatpants and all those things too. Th- those were no fun. Has anybody put ankle weights and tried to run with them? Anybody? Come on, put your hands up. Yep. Yes. You feel pretty awesome when you got those on, don't you? It's pretty sweet. <laughs> You're the marathon runner doesn't run the race with those weights on. Why would you do that? When the race starts, you you take the weights off. You put them on the side. The runner of the marathon race is careful about what he eats. Nothing that would weigh him down or her down, only that which would fuel them. He's careful about how he sleeps so that his sleeping does not weigh him down, but gives him the right amount, not too much and not too little. Runners are careful about the condition of their muscles coming in in the days leading up, not to work them too little, not to work them too hard. That would be a weight that they would add to their race, but they throw these things off. They wear clothing that is appropriate to the race. Runners, Olympic runners during this time, would have thrown things off like their scarfs and such. The author is telling us there are going to be things that you and I have to throw off. These are not things that you and I sit around and wait to come off. He's telling you to throw them off, to put them aside, to lay them aside. This is not a passive act. Again, we've created this whole ideology of Christianity where we just kind of sit by and, and just, well, well, God is sovereign and we're just going to let him do everything. And yes, God is sovereign, not denying that reality, but he is sovereign in part through our actions, through the laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, I interpret this passage to not be saying the same thing twice, but to be saying two different things. The first is this, throw off any and all sin. The, the other one I'll get to in a, is in a second, and that is throw off anything else. <laughs> I don't think he's saying throw off things and then clearly and then defines that more as things that are sinful. There's two categories here. So the first one is this, throw off any and all sin. Notice the descriptor here. Oh, when he talks about sin... He says that it clings so closely. He doesn't say that about the category that precedes it. But here, sin, it's kind of like those, uh, you know, if you ever ran through a meadow with some like higher weeds and you end up with those like burrs on your socks, right? And little sticky things and you're like, oh man. It clings so closely. Oftentimes, 
you've ran through the meadow and you didn't realize they were all jumping on you until you get to the other side and you're like, whoa, where did those come from? I got a hundred of them on my kneecap alone. They cling so closely. That's what he says of sin. And usually the things closest to us are the things we are most blind to. Let me encourage you, those around you are probably not blind to it. You have eyes there. (laughs) Spurgeon says this, our original sin, our natural tendencies, our constitutional infirmities, these must be laid aside as garments unsuitable for men who are running the heavenly race. Heaven is for the holy. Quoting Revelation 21, 27, he says, Every unclean thing and one who practices detestable things and falsehood will never enter into it. Meaning the kingdom of God. It's funny that John here in Revelation points out falsehood. Specifically. But nevertheless... We're to lay aside these as garments unsuitable. You know, it's like clockwork. Pastorally, I've seen this many times. You see someone's race begin to look a little ragged. Church attendance slumps. Bible reading goes down. Faces start to sour. Complaints start to rise pulling away from other runners and not in a they're ahead of the group kind of way. There's always, there's always, without fail, an enticing sin that is clinging so close in that person's life. What makes that hard then pastorally is as they begin, because their race is looking terrible, they're trying to find someone else to blame. So then they come to you This happens in marriages a lot too. Any kind of covenantal relationship, they come to you and they start to complain and and what you realize is that now, not only is their complaint wrong or out of place, they actually have a burr underneath their saddle and they don't realize it and you get to be the blessed one to tell them. There's always a sin and, and there's usually more under the hood than what you can see. But don't limit these sins clinging so closely to like extreme sins, things like porn addiction or affairs or gambling, etc. What about the sin that would cling so close like that of worshiping your wife? Looking like, not willing to tell her what needs to be said from God's word. Or the worship of your lifestyle. So you're not willing to tell your boss what needs to be said because it might threaten your lifestyle. Or you've got sin in your camp, your own household camp, because you're unwilling to tell any of them, kids included, what should be said. So don't just think of the sins as like these big extreme ones. It's probably the ones that are a little more subtle. The ones that you've grown a little more accustomed to. The ones that are a little more convenient. The ones that you can kind of stroke and just keep to the, to the side. And you've learned how to function with this sin. That's a big thing. You've learned how to just do life while stroking this sin along. Spurgeon goes on. He says, darling sins must go first. These as they are most loved, will have the most power to hinder you. Spurgeon draws out something that's really important. The the thing that, that you've learned to just do life with is that which has become most darling to you, become most adored to you. And so that thing has the power to be the most hindering to you. 
Why? It's there. It's subtle. It's under the saddle. It's just going along with you. It's just, it's not doing enough to make your race look obviously terrible, but just enough to keep you turning to the side just ever so slowly, just veering from the path ever so slightly. It has that power of subtlety. Has the power to just fly under the radar until it's too late. He says, darling sins must go first. Either these are the most loved, will have the most power to hinder. Every kind of sin must be watched against, struggled against, and mastered. Romans 6.14 says, he, he quotes, says, sin will not be master over you. He goes on, we hope to see all our tendencies to sin killed and buried, buried so deep that not even a bone of a sin shall be left above ground. This will be heaven to us. When every bone of sin is dead and in the ground, this will be heaven to us. So throw off any and all sin. First category. Second category. Throw off anything else that is hindering. Throw off anything else that is hindering. Back to the Olympic runners. They would not run with their normal clothing. He would throw off anything that was unnecessary to the run. I think this category here is speaking of things that are not necessarily sinful, but unwise. And this, we all get hung up here, because we just want to check box, don't do A, don't do B, and you'll be fine. It's things that are not necessarily sinful, but unwise. So all of these that I'm about to list are not necessarily wrong. They might be unwise for you, and they may not be unwise for someone else. Or it could be the amount of it is unwise for you, and that amount is, uh, is not unwise for someone else. Let me give you a list. Television, right? That's a great example. It's not necessarily sinful, although there are certain things that you consume that are indeed sinful, and many of us don't have the lines drawn in the right place there, but I, I digress. The parts that are not sinful for you to watch, but might be unwise, it could be more on the quantity side. Maybe you watch too much. How about sports? Or how about your wife's job outside the home? Or how about that bigger house? Or that promotion at work? Or how about... Uh, intellectual pursuits that are not wise. What I mean by that is giving yourself to studying something that is just unwise. It's not helping you run the race. Now, that doesn't mean we all be like monks and we read nothing but Christian books and that help us love Jesus, like, directly. It's not what I'm arguing for. But I'm saying you could give your mind to the study of something that's not going to help you run the race. It might actually hinder you. Again, many of these things um, are not wrong in and of themselves. Matter of fact, none of the things that I listed are wrong in and of themselves. The question is, is it a distraction to you when it comes to running the race? Some of these items can truly be a part of running the race. But almost any part of running the race can become a hindrance to the race itself. Let me give you an example. Should a runner pay attention to the runners around him? You think he should keep an eye on them? Yeah. What if he doesn't? He will probably crash into people <laughs> and make a lot of people mad and hurt a lot of people. But what happens if he comes, becomes too focused on the runners around him? What if that's all he can see? 
What if he can't see the finish line ahead? What if he can't see the course and the way it's turning? What if he can't see the turn coming ahead? At the very least, he will not run well. But he also, in those moments, may not pay attention to what his body is telling him. Maybe his pace is too high. Maybe his pace isn't high enough. But he's so focused on just making sure he doesn't hit the runners around him that he's not paying attention to the other items that he should be dealing with. So what should he do? He should throw off that distraction. It's not a bad thing to pay attention to the runners around him, but to be so focused on just that, it's become a distraction to the other things that he needs to pay attention to. And before I move on to the next main point, let me, let me just pause, like, just slow us down for just a moment. Just like, like even take a deep breath, okay? I want you to notice how much of a grace this is that the Lord is commanding us to do. He is not commanding us to do something that is burdensome or something that is hurtful to us. He is commanding us to do something that is a grace to us, that is good for us. What horse wants to run with a broken shoe? What dog wants to run with a thorn in his paw? Who wants to run with weights and burdens on their backs? Our Father tells us to throw it off so that we can run freely. If, if, if you've been a parent for um, particularly getting into those years where they can talk back to you more, there's so many times I say to my kids, like, I want nothing but good for you. I want, I'm telling you this or I'm telling you no because I want your good. God tells us to throw off the sin because he loves us. It's for our good. We're going to talk about he disciplines those whom he loves, right? He tells us to throw it off for it is good for us and he loves us. And listen, listen to this too. Anything that the Lord has called us to do his grace to accomplish it will be sufficient. So he has called us to throw off all the garbage that would hinder us from running freely the race he's given us, which means all the grace we need is already ours. I hesitate to say this, but I believe it. You don't even have to ask for that grace. It's more like you should ask for the ability to recognize his grace. Like, God's not up there going, well, man, if he'll just ask for it, I'll just give him the grace. Or he better do enough and I'll give him the grace. Jesus already secured all the grace that you and I need to accomplish all that God has called us to accomplish. Which includes throwing off whatever sin it is that's in your life which means the grace to discern what is unwise and wise that you need to toss aside. Listen, you will not regret, no matter how much pleasure that thing brings you that is just simply unwise, it's not necessarily sinful, you will not regret throwing that aside when you can look back 10 miles further down the race and see where the Lord has brought you to. You will not regret that. Next, you don't run the race without endurance. You don't run the race without endurance. Now we're going to talk about in a moment how to like feed that endurance. But if we're not careful, we'll miss the call to endurance which I think is what most Christian churches have done today, particularly in the gospel-centered movement. There's just this look to Jesus, which we're going to get there. But before we get there, there's a call to actively endure, to make decisions, to continue. I think this idea is lost on us. 
for many of us, if we have a tough day, I just hide and come out tomorrow. Maybe not physically, but maybe emotionally or mentally. We just hide and come out tomorrow. Or if we have a rough marriage, we just go find a new one. If we have an intense coach, we just let our kids try a new team. If the church gets uncomfortable, we just move to another one down the road that won't push us so hard. There abounds many options. And of course, we always have our excuses like, well, I just don't agree with their view on blank, blank, blank. The idea of endurance is lost on us. What does he mean by endurance? It simply means this, the capacity to continue. The capacity to continue. I would encourage you to look around at your life and and take inventory. Where do you have the capacity to continue and where do you tend to not have the capacity to continue? He tells us here, you have to have endurance. There is such a thing, I know it has, has, has left our vocabulary, particularly in my generation and below, there is such a thing as fortitude, Resilience, grit, stamina, determination, the capacity to continue, the capacity to say, I will not stop. I will take the next step. Sometimes the next step is simply, I will read my Bible today. I mean, the reality is I think most of us have plenty of areas where we show very well the capacity to continue. The issue is, is, is whether or not it's in the areas that we really need it. Like, I am going to finish this pizza. No matter what. <laughs> How about, you know what, I am going to continue the race of a godly marriage. And there's nothing's going to step in my way by the grace of God. He says, let us run with endurance the race that we've been called to. Now here's the question, how do you square that with, quote, saved by grace through faith, end quote, and avoid that ugly word we're also afraid of called legalism. Um, I don't have a lot of time to dive into this, and I feel like I've treated this many times before, but my first thought is this. You should stop worrying about that. That's the first step. Two, you should fix deep in your mind, I cannot earn my salvation. (laughs) And then work hard to endure. Work hard to endure. Just remind yourself over and over again, not by my works, but by the grace of God. Over and over. That's all I'm going to say on that. I've talked on this many times. But you don't run the race. You don't race without endurance. Next, you don't race without focus. You don't race without focus. So, so here's two things that are going to happen over the next few moments as I work through this point. One is we're going to talk about now the priority of focuses. Right? So this is like the don't get too focused on the runners around you. So we're going to talk about now the priority of your focus, focuses, your foci, or whatever the plural is for that. The second thing we're going to do is how do you feed the endurance? How do you keep the endurance strong? How do you keep the fortitude and the diligence up? This, this next verse is going to answer those two things. Looking to Jesus, right? So he just said, run the race with endurance. I'm sorry, uh, let us run with endurance. The race is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the emphasis here. Don't miss this because the the English language does not capture this well. The emphasis here is look away from another in order to fix your eyes on Jesus. 
That's the emphasis. We lose that like turning from something else. I think part of why he uses that language here is because we always have our eyes fixed on something. It's not just blank stares and then I'm just going to stare on Jesus. But turn your eyes from the other things to fix them on Jesus. It should read, turn your eyes away from everything else and fix them on Jesus Christ alone. That's the weight here. You know what this means? It means the great cloud of witnesses cannot be your focus. They're there for your encouragement. You should give heed to them, but they cannot be your focus. Abraham, Isaac, Noah, they cannot be your focus. It also means don't look at the weights and the entanglements, even the throwing off of those. That cannot be your focus. The, the race course, the competitors. He says, looking to Jesus, and there is no other person listed or thing listed. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you don't consider all these things. Why would he just tell us that there's a great cloud of witnesses? They're there for consideration, but they're not your focus. Surely you consider the cloud. Surely you consider the sins to throw them off. Surely you consider the runners beside you. But he is saying this, you do not look to them, here's the key, as the premier example, object, or source of your faith. And I'm going to work through those. You don't look to them. You don't look to Abraham. You don't look to Isaac. You don't, you don't look to David as the premier example, object, or source of your faith. You don't look to your throwing off of sin as the premier example, object, or source of your faith. There'd be another way to fight against legalism. You don't look to your doings as the premier example or object or source of your faith. So we work through each one of those quickly. Jesus is the premier example of our faith. The premier example. The word that's translated here in the ESV as the founder is probably better understood as like forerunner or pioneer. founder, better as forerunner or pioneer. This the idea of pioneer or forerunner uh, communicates like the con- a stronger connotation of like um, did the necessary work to establish. He's the first one. To put it in other words, he's the first to take the next acre. He busted through the barriers. He broke through the brush. Felt this way on Thursday when I had a group of people uh, coming to help clean up our barn in preparation for Boniface Camp. I opened the door. felt like, wow, it's a big acre we got to take right now. It was a mess. I'm sure they all went, I'm sure they all went back and, you know, Took a lot of ibuprofen and stuff by the time we were done. <laughs> uh, yes, anyways, I won't belabor that point. <clears throat> Jesus busted through the barriers, broke through the brush. Similarly, the word perfecter here connotes the idea that Jesus is the supreme and perfect example of faith. So it's, why, it's part of why it's what sets him apart from Abraham, Noah, is he is the only one who, is, who had the perfect example of faith. Next, Jesus is the object of our faith. So he's not just the example, but the object. Here's what I mean by that, or here's what the text means by that, that he waits at the finish line for us. It is to him and for him that we run. So what I mean by object of our faith? 
It is to him and for him that we run. Put it in other words, we endure and persevere because we want to know Christ and join Christ and share the blessings of his salvation. That's why we run. That's why we endure. That's why we put the next foot in front of the other. So that we would know him, be with him, and share in the blessings of his gracious, saving work. So he's the premier example, he's the object, and he is the source of our faith. He's active in inspiring and empowering faith in us because he lives now. This is where, like, in your mind... You need to go back to all that language of this king priest who is, that we've talked about in Hebrews that is sending all the resources that you and I need. Well, that's what he's talking about here, that Jesus is the source of our faith. So as we run, he is there sending every resource we need, empowering every mundane moment such that we would run as he has called us to. Thomas Watson said this, As the Spirit is at work in the heart, so is Christ at work in heaven. Christ is ever praying that the saint's grace may hold out. That prayer which Christ made for Peter was the copy of the prayer he now makes for believers. Quote, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Luke 22, verse 32. Watson says, how can the children of such prayers perish? How can the children of such prayers made by such a priest as Jesus Christ fail? How? It would render Christ's prayers ineffective, and his prayers are not ineffective. Amen? So let me ask you this question. What are your eyes fixed upon? Listen, those who fix their gaze on the world and the things of the world will be conformed to its pattern. It might be one of my biggest frustrations, at least at the moment. And I know that this this is present in my own life too. Just how much of the world has made it through the porous walls of the church and has been adopted as acceptable or the way in which we live as Christians. But the same is true the other way. Christian, hear me. Don't miss this. The same is true the other way. Those who fix their eyes on Jesus will find themselves changed into his pattern. You've heard us say before, you know, when you're learning to drive, you know, you got a car coming the other way, it's dark, and the lights are about blinding you because no one knows how to turn off their high beams, you know. Where are you supposed to look at? You just keep staring at the lights, right? No, you stare just slightly to the right on that white line. It, why? Because if you stare towards the lights, if you stare towards the yellow, you will veer in that direction. Fix your eyes on Christ. You will find his pattern to become a reality in yours. Now, a word of caution. Again, You can't just fix your eyes. I've said this in other sermons. We've said this in many different ways. You can't just fix your eyes on the aspects of Jesus that are most sensible to you or to the culture around you. Or you will end up like many names that I could give you in a long list. 
You can't limit your knowledge of Jesus to even just the Gospels. The whole Bible concerns Jesus. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, Jesus, right, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what I just said a few moments ago. Those who fix their eyes on Jesus will find themselves changed into his pattern. From one degree of glory to another. As you behold the glory of the Christ, all of his glory, not the ones that are most sensible or palatable to you or to your pagan friends, you will be transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to the next. And that is all the grace we need, all of it. Last point, you don't run the race without joy. You don't run the race without joy. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Weary and faint-heartedness. Those that enjoy maybe go together in some measure, but they're usually not. So let me ask you this question. Are you weary? I'll begin there. Are you weary? But let me, let me frame this. Are you weary for the right reasons? Because uh, the, the temptation, particularly in modern churches and evangelists, to take this and make this some sort of comfort about no matter how weary or why you're weary, there's Jesus and so be happy and go home and send in your check. But are you weary for the right reasons that are pertinent to this passage? Some of you, some of us, grow weary at times because we have our eyes fixed on the wrong things. You will grow weary when your eyes are fixed on the wrong things. Some of us are weary because we're arrogant and foolish. Some of us are weary because we are lazy. But this is a weariness that sometimes accompanies faithful followers. That's the context. These are faithful followers. It's especially, if you carry the context, a weariness that comes from the hostility of sinners. Don't miss it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's not just in verse 3, but those in Hebrews are facing hostility. Like persecution is on the rise. Remember, they plundered their property. So that's the context here. It's a weariness that accompanies faithful following Jesus, faithful following of Jesus that then gets the onslaught of hostility from the world. And he's saying that is going to, to potentially lead to a measure of weariness or faint-heartedness. So my question is, are you weary? Because in your effort to walk in faithfulness, you're being attacked from those who are hostile to the gospel. Listen, a runner who is weary may barely finish the race or may not finish it at all. And that's what's at stake. That's what's the danger. But here he says, consider him, consider Jesus. And verse 2 says that he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's talk about a little bit of that there. He endured the cross. 
I, I'm going to just move on from this one. I, I think we understand this one in general. But what about despising the shame? Shame is a terrible thing to endure, is it not? Who likes to have shame heaped upon you? For our Savior, this we understand the context. For our Savior, the idea of shame would be of a particularly great challenge. Why? Spurgeon said it this way. The nobler a man's nature, the more readily does he perceive the slightest contempt, and the more acutely does he feel it? What's he saying? Because Jesus was without any reason for shame, that he would feel it more deeply, he would know the shame more richly than any of us will ever know. In other words, he, he who is without sin and nothing but honorable would feel the weight of shame most deeply. But what's he say, what's he say here? He disregarded the shame, meaning, let me put it in modern vernacular, he paid no attention to it. He paid no attention to it. It affected him not. He put the next foot in front of the other. I imagine he laughed and moved on. It says that he endured sinners hostile to him. So this is pulling this thread on this shame thing here. He endured false accusation. He endured things like gossip, physical beatings, weak church leaders, being shunned, not having many friends, but he endured. He endured with diligence, fortitude, the capacity to continue. Spurgeon says this, no personal animosity ever ruffled the serenity of our great master's spirit. End quote. He persevered in his life work just as much as if he had never been opposed. He continued as if none of that other stuff was happening. As if they weren't gnashing their teeth and raging. He just continued. He pressed on. He took the next step. He did the next miracle. He walked in obedience and faithfulness regardless of what they said. Spurgeon said this, like the sun that goes on in its strength, whether clouds hide it or whether it shines out of the blue serene, Christ continued in his heavenward way. He continued. So then how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we endure like that? He says to consider intently. Consider him. Consider him, the person I just described. Consider him. Now, the emphasis here, again, is, is not just turn from this to think about this or your eyes from here to your eyes to, here, to there. It is consider intently, with intentionality, with focus. And fix your eyes. When he says fix your eyes, the emphasis was, again, on turning away from something else to, to be on Jesus. Now the emphasis is on thinking Focusing intently, keenly, fixedly, absorbedly on Christ. To be all consumed. Romans 8 verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the th sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, to, that is to be revealed to us. What's Paul doing there practically? What's he doing? He's saying, I'm consumed. I am considering intently. 
I am keenly focused on the glory that is to be revealed, which is what? This is Jesus. That's my focus. You see, Jesus ran the race with joy. Why? Because he could see the crown on the other side. He could see the blessing on the other side. He could see the glory that was to be revealed on the other side. He could see through it. What's it take to see that? What's it take? What's the word? It starts with an F. Faith. Come on, one, two, three. Faith. There we go. We've been talking about for 12 chapters. Well, 11, going on 12. He had faith. He could see that which was not right in his hands, but he could see it as if it was. That's how he ran with joy. Spurgeon said this again. The joy that was set before Jesus was principally the joy of saving you and me. I know it was the joy of fulfilling his Father's will, of sitting down on his Father's throne, of being made perfect through suffering. But, I, but still I know that this is the grand, great motive of our Savior's suffering, the joy of saving us, the joy of saving his bride for the glory of his Father. Spurgeon again. He ran, Jesus ran with a heavy cross on his back, and yet he ran faster than you or I have run. He ran because he had more joy than we have. Why? Because his faith was stronger. Because to him, it was, it was not a matter of whether, but when. It's not will it happen, it's just a matter of when will it happen. Don't miss this. For the joy that was set before him. The joy. What was the joy? We just talked about that. And that was set before him. That's how he endured. How do you endure? It's a matter of what is set before you. Jesus had the joy of anticipated victory set before him. And so he endured the cross. And so he paid no attention to the shame. He had the joy of anticipated victory. So my question for you today is this. What are you setting before yourself? What are you setting before yourself? A dreary day of duties, the approval of a spouse, the excitement of a sport, some ideal financial situation, ideas you find on social media or YouTube, the approval of your children. If these are the things that you continually set before you, you will not run with joy. What you must set before your eyes is Christ. Always and always and always. You must set before yourself, before your eyes, all that he has said and all that he has done every single day. Know what he has said. Know him by what he has done. Know him by what has been said about him. Know him by what was said of him before he walked the earth as a man. That's a nice way of saying the Old Testament. Let me remind you, our Lord Jesus Christ himself after he rose from the grave in Luke 24, as he's walking down the road with his downcast and discouraged disciples, what does he do? He takes the Old Testament and he shows them all of it as it concerns him. Why do you think Jesus did that? 
so his disciples would endure, so they would run the race, so they could fix their eyes on him. He knew that he wasn't going to be physically with them much longer. He knew that moment was coming. He knew that they, but they had the scriptures. So he showed them how to endure by fixing their eyes on him. That's how you fix your eyes for the race. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Father, particularly for your son, Jesus. Father, that, that we are not just called to a list of rules, called to uh, do this or that. But Father, we have a founder and a perfecter of our faith that is the premier example. He's the object and he's the source of our faith. Father, help us run with endurance. Father, help us fix our eyes on your son. Father, help us to see, to have joy because of anticipated victory. For the same victory that is, was Christ's is now ours too. Father, thank you for including us in your great plan. Father, for, its, for your glory's sake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.